If you would turn with me this morning, once more I'm talking to you about a tremendous theme on the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, last week in speaking of on the Christmas theme of the birth of Christ, I related it to our present studies concerning his second coming and the marriage supper of the Lamb. For he was born a bridegroom with a bride chosen like no one else's bride was ever chosen. A bride who was chosen for him before the foundations of the world. And while fathers in olden days and also even in the present time in some cultures still choose the brides of their sons. This bride, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. And so this morning I once more would like to, you to turn with me to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, while I read the verses that we've been using as a springboard and some others that go along with it, which shed some light on the glorious position, the glorious privilege, and the great promised place we have as the bride of Jesus Christ. You know, it's often been said that Christianity has been tried and has failed but rather it never has been truly tried. Christianity, as we see it in a general sense today, if I might say, just looking around us at those who call themselves Christians, is not Christ in you, your hope of glory. has nothing to do with that. It is a powerless thing, an anesthetic, if I might say, to most people's minds because they've never really known the Savior and known the tremendous power of the Holy Spirit to dwell in their breasts. Man is such a limited being. He is so little and so finite. What is man that thou shouldst consider him? And yet somehow with their finite minds they exalt themselves because they've received a little more brain power than others and in the exalting of that brain power they stretch themselves far beyond their capacities to understand eternity past, eternity future and life present. We are so limited in our concepts, so limited in our abilities to, to understand anything about who man really is. Evolution doesn't teach us anything. What does it teach us? Go down through the generations. Who cares whether it's 4 billion or 8 billion or 12 billion years old? What difference does it make? Study? Fine. Wonderful. Enjoy your studies. But don't get involved in setting the concepts down for the future. You don't know a thing about it. And frankly... 
all of the fortune tellers and the Mrs. Dixons and all of the others and Casey who have talked of the future. I read an interesting article, as I mentioned to you, about Mrs. Dixon that 95% of her prophecies never come out. 5% do, so they exalt the 5% and make it look like all the prophecies come true. Well, that's worse than most can do. 50-50 would be a good average. That would be unusual, but hers is worse than that. But she's got good, good publicity agents like a lot of these folks who publish books. And you think that there's a new prophetess. She knows everything. She guessed one or two things right in the whole world. You know, something about uh, possibly the president would be assassinated. Well, any president has a good chance nowadays. If I do say so. And guesses such as that, beloved, have nothing to do with the future. There are no prophets of the future. And you don't need a prophet, you have a prophet. And he is the one who has revealed unto us all things. So, beloved, when we think of Christianity, and people saying Christianity has been tried and failed, don't you fool yourself. Maybe the church organized has failed. It's colossal in its failure. But I want to tell you the true church of Jesus Christ, where the power of the Holy Spirit resides, can never fail. And I wouldn't care if we were all slain. We would be a success. Because we would merely be proving to a dying world that Jesus Christ said they hated me they'll hate you. That we were not to be surprised if we would be persecuted. That we would not be surprised if we were slain. The true church can never fail because it has its Savior and that Savior has promised us eternal life in himself. And he says, no one shall pluck you from my hand. I give you eternal life. So as far as you and I are concerned who know Christ, and I hope when I say that, your heart really responds, beloved. You don't fool anybody. You could fool past again. You could fool a congregation, honestly. You could get to know all the language of salvation. You could get to know all the phraseologies. You could even get to recite verses. But I want to tell you that conversion is so deep and so holy and so real, you're never lying to God. You can never lie to God. That's why he says, I don't look on the outward things. I look upon the heart. And therefore, concerning the things of God and salvation and real Christianity. Oh, beloved, that we might understand when people say Christianity has been tried and failed, it's never been tried. If it had really been tried in the power of the Holy Spirit, this world would have been a flame for Christ. But the Savior had warned us he came to his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power, privilege to be the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. So how we should rejoice this morning. 
your little tribulations, your little trials, your little burdens are so insignificant, whether it be cancer, heart trouble, burdens, trials, sorrows. I reckon that the sufferings of this time are as nothing compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so, if we can get that concept into our hearts, how great it is. Now, let me read to you a few of the verses that are very important. I asked you to turn to Ephesians, but I would like to just read a few verses. You don't have to turn to them. You can stay at Ephesians. But we're talking of the great marriage supper of the Lamb in 19.7 Revelation, where it says the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And that bride is his church, which is his body. Paul says the church is his body. The scripture tells us we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Oh, God, give us a concept of marriage. We treat it as though it's ours. But it is thine to give. And it was to picture to us the relationship of Jesus and his church. We remember that that's what Ephesians tells us. I show you a great mystery. But I'm speaking of Christ and his church when I speak of marriage. Give us the concept. We are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And then Paul goes on to say, and members one of another. What a tremendous privilege. Carlton, you're part with me. My children, you're part with me. Of Christ's body. Holly. Lillian, Brock, all of you. Ernie, I see you back there. All my beloved brothers and sisters, young folks. I won't call you by name. The young folks don't like me to call them by name. All right? But young folks, we're part together. We who have received Christ as our personal Savior, part of the precious body of Jesus Christ. And marriage makes us Remember, it joins together two people and makes them one. And ye two shall be one flesh. And so Jesus has made sure that we understand that we who have been saved and redeemed and cleansed in his precious blood from sin, for the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I cannot be part of Christ's body and be sinful. I am cleansed every whit. I have died unto sin. On the practical side, the fleshly side, my body still responds to those things which are sinful, my flesh. 
but I have been joined to Christ in this mystical union of a bride and a bridegroom and have become part of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, and Christ is undefiled and pure and holy, and be ye holy even as I am holy. How can I be holy, Lord? I've made you part of myself, and I have imparted to you my righteousness. For he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. How? In him. And so here we are, part of the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a high and holy concept of marriage could be instilled, not into the hearts of the world. I never expect that. I never expect the world to understand marriage. That's why there are no marriages in this church that are not born-again Christians. If all that is desired is the legal right to live together, you can get that from the state. God says it is honorable in all people and most all the nations of the earth, whether they be the tribes or any others, have some form of marriage. They have some sort of a ceremony concerning marriage. And though, as I said to you from the beginnings, there was, there was no ceremony, a marriage was consummated when the man took the woman unto wife unto himself and it became part of him. And that joining together was sort of the restoral of the Adam and Eve. Eve taken from the side of Adam and then the joining together of a man and a woman again, making them one flesh, in a sense restoring them to that holy oneness. Woman meaning coming out of man. And so it was only down through the ages that ceremonies began to come in. And the reason for ceremonies was very clear. Men became very loose and their license was great. And by the days of Noah, sin was rampant in the earth. In Israel, sin was rampant in the sex area. And there came in ceremonies and rites and rituals so that publicly it would be said these two have been joined together. You can read the history books and you can go back as far as you want and you find that culture after culture after culture undertook to have wedding ceremonies. So much so that when the time of Christ came, Jesus' first great miracle was at the marriage of Cana and there he blessed the marriage with his presence and he blessed the joining together of the two and he was part of that wedding celebration that observance to all the world which said this man and this woman have been made one when the Puritans came over here, you read your history books, what did they do? In rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church, they threw out all ceremonies. They went to the other extreme. They threw it all aside because they were rebellious against the Roman Church that called it a sacrament. And they objected to this. 
But then again into the culture of this country came back all of the wedding ceremonies. And so today, the wedding ceremony we have is two things. It is a public avowal to all that these two are joined together in Christ. And number two, it is the teaching of the church to all those who are seated before us concerning what marriage is. And so God has wonderfully blessed marriage. Now let me read from Ephesians, if I might. The marriage of the Lamb is come as in Revelation, and his wife has made herself ready. Then in 2 Corinthians 11:2, I am jealous over you, Paul says, with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin unto Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joining together with his church for all eternity, that time when he would catch it up to be with himself, this bride would, would be with him in person. That joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, the burden of all our sin. This is how he longed for us. And is set down at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. Majesty and dominion and power. Remember the words of John the Baptist. He that hath the bridegroom, the bride is the bridegroom. I'm just giving you the backdrop now. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Thus my joy, he was not part of the bride of Christ. The last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. He says, thus my joy is therefore fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then Ephesians 5. Wives, 22nd verse. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now may I say this? This should never be read at any wedding ceremony where there are not Christians. It has nothing to do with an unchristian. I wouldn't read it. It is an absolute lie for two people to come together who know not Christ. Listen, these could, there could be weddings in this church week after week after week if I listen to people who call me on the phone. They're calling and I say, we, know that we, we hear you have a nice middle aisle. Yeah, we hear you have a nice middle aisle. Could we use it? Come into my study, as I've mentioned, Jew, Roman Catholic. We'd like to be married. I said, when? To now. I said, what do you know about Christ? They look at me. The Roman Catholic says, well, I'm a Roman Catholic. The Jewish girl says, but I'm a Jew. I said, well, well tell me, what did you... I said, what did the priest say to you? Oh, he won't marry me. I said, what did the rabbi say to you? Oh, he won't marry me. 
So I'm the bottom of the barrel. You come to me. But I want to tell you, this is how our Protestantism is regarded. If no one else will marry them, they just run in the Protestant church. They'll join you together. They'll put somehow their blessing upon it. But I want you to notice, this is the portion that is read at marriages. In all churches. And it is a definite lie when it is read to the wrong people. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. How can you submit yourself to a husband if you don't know the Lord? How are you to submit yourself, wife, as unto the Lord? This is a glorious submission. This is something that only the Christian can understand if the Christian wife is really submitted unto the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, you can't be submitted. That's common sense. I hardly would have to be an intellectual to understand that. But notice as you go on how intense it becomes. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ the name is mentioned, is the head of the church. Now, how can you understand this, husband, unless you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? How can you know what Christ's relationship is to his church? How he loved the church and gave himself for it? How will you understand this? How will it mean anything to you? Is this solemnizing marriage unless you understand what you are hearing and you believe it with all your heart? The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And I want to say this in a very special sense and very carefully, that Christ is our Savior but in the deepest and most holy sense, a fine, godly Christian husband is the Savior, the helper, the holder of his wife's body. She's become one with him. I recently read some of John Owen's old works on this great man of God. And oh, how intense he makes this. Savior in two senses. He says, since it is a mystery in the 32nd verse here of the 5th chapter, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ concerning his church. He says, therefore, we understand he is the Savior of the body. We become part of him, of his flesh and of his bones. But in a very special, wonderful sense, he says, he, the husband, is the Savior of his Christ's body, not like Christ's blood shed for him, but in a very great sense, the love and the tenderness and the compassion and the holy approach of a husband to his most blessed possession in his life. God, having joined them together, there is an interrelating possession, one of the other, each other. 
absolute possession. 1 Corinthians 7. A husband hath not control or power over his own body. Only his wife does. And a wife hath not control over her body. Only her husband does. Absolute possession. As the Lord bought the church and purchased it with his blood, there is an absolute interrelating possession between the husband and the wife of each other. So there is no room for extramarital relationships. They should hardly be called extramarital since marriage has separated you from all others in the world. And so there is a great interrelationship. Those people who marry and say, well, I'm getting married, but I'm going to be independent. Well, you don't want past again. There's no independence in marriage. You are absolutely dependent upon each other. For your joys, all of your happiness, all of your blessings, you are absolutely dependent. And anybody who says, I'm going to get married, but I want three nights out a week, you don't understand the marriage covenant. You don't have to make arrangements. You have a deep and a holy love for each other that says we completely depend upon each other. Let me tell you, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. 32nd verse. Remember, I'm showing you a great mystery, he says. While I'm speaking of the joining together of a man and a woman in Christ, I am speaking of Christ's relationship to his church. Don't you see there's no independence as a Christian? You can't be what you want to be as a Christian. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That's why a father, a husband, is to be the leader in God's eyes spiritually. He's to be the dynamic man God wants him to be spiritually. To lead the family. or to God that men took hold. Quit yourselves like men, Paul says. That they took hold and were the leaders leading their wives and their families into the higher and higher grounds spiritually and coming into the radiant presence of Jesus Christ with their little families at their tables, in devotions, in prayer, in deep and solemn thoughts about God. Oh, that this nation would be swept by something like that. We'd see a change, not just in young people, but in fathers and mothers. Listen, it's been the poor example of Christian fathers and mothers has been a great reflection upon Christian young people. Show me that family that really is serving God. Now, I'm not talking about coming to Franklin Avenue. I'm glad you come here. I'm not talking about coming into this place and sitting in pews. I'm talking about a mother and father who so loved Christ that their daughters and their sons know it. It's reflected not only in their love for each other, in the depths of that love, in the holiness of that love, in their approach to each other, in the tenderness, in the compassion, in the husband's love for his wife like a, 
why Christ loved this church and in the wife's holy, glorious submission to her husband when that husband is such. That kind of reflection in the, in the lives of sons and daughters does tremendous things. When those things become evident in the lives of Christian mothers and fathers, God will give the results. And when he says, bring the children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, he doesn't mean just to sit down and read the scriptures and have devotions and then argue and fight and battle. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people who think they're bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because they read the scriptures and because they have a one-minute prayer at the table. And their lives fail to shine for the living God in the home, in their holy approach to everything, that God may bless them. Oh, this theme is so tremendous. You know, I just read the other day, it, it thrilled me, just a, just a phrase from some worldly man, but one of the great authors, I don't even remember his name, I heard it on the radio and I stopped my car and copied it down, I thought it was so good. But here's what he said, and I couldn't help but think, it's one of the great men, his name just escapes me, one of the great authors, and here's a phrase he used which I think is so glorious, and he wasn't a Christian, but here's what he said. A great marriage is a conversation that seems much too short. Isn't that beautiful? A great marriage is from a worldly man is a conversation that seems much too short. What does it mean? There's dialogue between a husband and wife. You don't just love the person in the sense that you've found someone that you can live with and enjoy but there's so much more than this. It is a life of dialogue between two people, of understanding, of communion. Oh, when I meet with young people, you know, I think often they think the first thing I'm going to say to them is, now I want to tell you, first of all, you have to be sexually adjusted. I get to that. But I say, let me be frank with you. I want to start with the first place. Number one, are you Christians? Born again, you really know Christ. Ah, they both say, yep, we're both born again. Number two, it's not enough. They look at you sometimes. Oh, yeah, mouth open. Huh? Do you love each other? Then they, then they, oh, then they shine. Yes, we love each other. Great. Then they think I'm through. Number three. Do you communicate with each other? Do you like to sit down and talk? Do you like to be together? Could you sit in the living room and not say anything? and be very comfortable. Do you like to just take a walk on a beach and hold hands? Do you like all these things? Sometimes, at this point, I lose them. 
Oh, I've had at least, I, I'd hate to tell you the number of weddings that have never come off in this church. Because by the time I get down to sex, they've already decided we're not for each other. And so there is this beautiful picture you see that God's trying to give us of Christ and his church in so many areas. He communicates with us. He loves us. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There's a father and son relationship. There's all kinds of relationships that are all to be intertwined, the bride and the bridegroom, so that love is fully understood in all of its complexities. It's not some simple thing that the world outside says, as long as you're adjusted, you're all right. Don't fool yourself. I want to tell you that that kind of love soon dies. It either dies from overuse or age or sickness and will never stand the test. But the kind of love I'm talking about will last through sickness, through the aging process, which we all go through right on till we see Christ face to face. And so when I marry them now, you know, when I first started as a pastor, I can remember back then, you know, and I really, all I thought was necessary when I first was saved was as long as two people are Christians, it'll work. But it doesn't work. They have to be Christians in love, in communion with each other, friends, everything possible. Then there's no adjustments because all the else is right. And then that part of life becomes the most beautiful because it's a matter of communication and it's a matter of knowing God has joined us together and we are one in Jesus Christ. Oh, that God will make this so real to us. A great marriage is a conversation that's far too short. That's really great. It's the dialogue of life. (laughs) That's it. It's the dialogue of life. And this is Christ with us. This is Christ. He's always in love with us. He never sleeps. He's always tenderly watching his bride, his children. Oh, how it hurts him when they depart, when they become cold. In Ephesus, in the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, he says, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. What's happened to you? He says, are you my bride? You don't look like a bride. Where is your love for me? Show me. You're so concerned about your own little life and your own little house and your own little clothing and your jewels and all of this. Where is your love for me? Do you look like my disciples? Do you look like my apostles who died for me? Could you do it? Yet you are my bride. Oh, you left your first love. I can't think of anything more dreadful 
than for either a wife or a husband to have to say to their mate, what's happened, honey? Where's the love we had in the beginning? Can you? Hmm? Can you? Let me ask you, husband, can you? Can you, wife? And this is the picture God wants. Boy, I have a lot more to say. But the time is up, and I'll say more about it. This is my fourth or fifth marriage, you know, ceremony here on Sunday mornings <laughs> over the last five, six weeks. But there's a lot more. And I want to tell you, when Christian marriages get right and love is great and strong in the Holy Ghost, then the world of our own little families will be changed. And through those neighbors around you and loved ones you want to come to Christ will also, God will answer your prayers. Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy precious word this morning. Bless it to our hearts. Lord, bless this people with a special measure of Thy love. Give them a deep and holy understanding that when we speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're speaking of a very important thing. For the whole treatise in Ephesians has to do with Christ and His church and what marriage is. And so we're looking to the day when we shall be at that marriage supper but, Lord, we pray that right here on earth we may get a tender, loving, and holy picture, a type and a shadow of that final day when we shall be joined with him for all eternity. And, Father, there are those who have lost love mates there are those, Lord, who have never had on this earth the joy of marriage. Oh, God, give them a deep and holy understanding. They have a bridegroom who loves them and will love them so deeply for all eternity that all that seems so important now shall go into insignificance when we see his lovely face. Bless us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.